0: Turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. 2700 years ago, God said through Isaiah, My ways are not your ways, and my thoughts are not your thoughts. As the heavens are high, higher above the earth, high above the earth, so are my thoughts higher than your thoughts. God's ways, His methods of doing things, His approach, His values are different from our values as men. And yet, at times, we, as Christians, and we collectively as a church, become influenced by the world around us. And unknowingly, even, we start to adopt their values. Whenever we do that, we suffer. We hurt from it. This morning, we want to look at 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 10 to 31. And see what was happening in the life of the church in Corinth. They too were being influenced by their world and adopting a worldly philosophy. And because of it, there were hurts in the church. First of all, we want to look at the hurt in verses 10 through 17. The result of being influenced by the world was division within the church. Let's read verses 10 to 17. Now I exhort you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all agree that there be no divisions among you, but you be made complete in the same mind and in the same judgment. For I have been informed concerning you, my brethren, by Chloe's people, that there are quarrels among you. Now I mean this, that each one of you is saying, I am of Paul, and I am of Apollos, and I am of Cephas, and I of Christ. Has Christ been divided? Paul was not crucified for you, was he? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you, except Crispus and Gaius, that no man should say you were baptized in my name. Oh, now that I remember it, I did baptize also the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I don't know whether I baptized any other. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel not in cleverness of speech, that the cross of Christ should not be made void. So Paul says there are divisions in the church, and he exhorts the people, verse 10, that you all agree there be no divisions, that you be made complete in the same mind and in the same judgment. I don't know about you, but when I first read that, it was rather troublesome. It sounds very much like Paul is saying that you as Christians should come to complete unanimity. You should agree and believe precisely the same thing about every interpretation of every passage of Scripture. Have precisely the same viewpoint and feeling about every strategy that the Church adopts and every program. The problem with that, of course, is that when people are given the freedom to think for themselves, no two people think precisely the same. And all the married people said, Amen. (laughs) Because we are limited, we don't have a complete grasp of all that God says, and we each have our own perspective and slant on things. And so there are some differences. The only way to have a complete unanimity in in the sense in which I'm speaking is for one man to be over the church and dictate to everybody else what they believe. Of course, this is the set up in the Roman Catholic Church, where the Pope is thought to be supreme and infallible when he speaks officially, ex cathedra. In many Protestant churches, you have a similar situation. You have one man who's a pastor over the church, and he establishes the party line. What he says goes. All the other staff and the lay leaders, Sunday school teachers, all have to fall in the line to precisely with everything he says, or else they're in hot water. Now, fortunately, we don't have that kind of situation here at Cole. We're given the latitude to, to believe as we understand the scriptures. There are certain limitations, of course, but we're given a great deal of latitude, and it's recognized that, that not everybody agrees. One of the fun parts about our staff Bible studies is to see where we disagree and try to hammer out our differences, and we don't always come out to the, at the same place. We're given that latitude. Well, Paul does sound like he's saying, though, he says that you all agree to be made complete in the same mind and the same judgment. That certainly sounds like he's saying that you all believe precisely the same thing. But we get a different understanding when we understand the background out of which Paul was writing and the way that these words were used in the Corinthian culture. These words are taken out of the political sphere of life and the word that you all agree or speak the same thing, that phrase, was meant that there be no disagreements, no divisions about you, but that you come to uh, harmony with one another. The word that says that you be made complete was used in the Greek political life of of mending factions. So Paul is saying is it's not like we all sing a song in unison but rather that we sing it in harmony. It's not that we all believe precisely the th- same thing, but that we, uh, we're we allowed to disagree, but just not to be disagreeable about our differences. And that's what he's after. Not unison, but harmony. Now, divisions come whenever we lack that harmony, whenever a we-they mentality starts to develop in the church. You have certain people who hold opinions or preferences one way. After a while, these preferences become convictions. I must stand for my convictions. And pretty soon you feel that those convictions, you see the way things ought to be run or the way this scripture ought to be interpreted. And therefore, you start feeling this is the way things ought to to happen. And you start insisting whether by actions or by attitudes that other people fall in line with you. And suspicions develop and arise between you and the other group. And the we-they mentality develops and it it widens, the gap widens between you. You start feeling that you're the only ones who have the real insight and the real, real key to what should make the church run. Well, how do we give up? this kind of of feeling? How do we develop a unity? Well, we do it when we recognize that Jesus Christ is the Lord of the church, not me, not you. He's the one who calls the shots. If he has said in Scripture that things should be a certain way, and that's made clear, then we have to go by that. If he has chosen not to make a certain thing clear in Scripture or say anything about a certain subject, then we need to allow one another freedom. Not insist that my way, my conviction, my interpretation be held by everybody else. We must come to a unity of purpose so that our purpose is to glorify Jesus Christ. Not to get my convictions held by everybody else and followed by them. I heard of one church that split over the issue of whether or not to allow a Christmas tree in the church auditorium. I'm sure that it's interesting to see your reactions. Some of you are laughing, others are shaking your heads. And it's, that's kind of the way we all do it, something like that. It's humorous and it's so ridiculous, but it's sad because it's true. One group felt we should fit in with the culture of our city. And the normal way of celebrating Christmas is to have a Christmas tree, so we should do this. And the other group was arguing, well Christmas trees come from a pagan background, and they do. Come from the Germanic pagan Yule festivals of the Germanic tribes in the Middle Ages and before. And they were arguing that Christmas tree then is a pagan symbol, and we cannot, cannot allow a pagan symbol in the church building. And they each had their conviction, and suspicions developed, and we they mentality, and pretty soon the church was split. You know what the first big controversy in the early church was? You might think it was over the deity of Christ, or the authority of scripture, or the way of salvation, or something important like that. But it was over what day to celebrate Easter. The Western Church said, Easter should always be celebrated on Sunday. Christ rose from the dead on Sunday, therefore we should celebrate it on Resurrection Day, Sunday. Those in the eastern part of the Roman Empire said, no, but Easter should always be celebrated on the same day of the month, no matter what day it falls on. The 14th of the lunar month, Nisan, should always be celebrated in that month, because that's the day he rose from the dead. And so they argued, and they said bad things back and forth to one another, to have got to the point in which the bishop of Rome denounced as heretics all those who said that Easter should be celebrated on the 14th of the month. And he excommunicated them from the church. And this is the very thing that Paul is arguing against. He's saying, don't do this. You need to let Jesus Christ be the Lord, set aside the differences, unite under him. Don't allow there to be these differences within the church. A charismatic group and a non-charismatic group, and they're the we-they mentality, or pre and all-millennial. or those who feel that we should have a formal worship service with, with organ music and quiet solitude and reverence, and those who say, no, we should have a relaxed uh, worship service of joy and sharing and guitar music and blue jeans, and a we they mentality develops. Paul is saying, Be united. Set aside insisting on your way, and come to the unity that is there in the body of Christ. It says in Ephesians four, there is one Lord, one faith, one baptism. There is a unity in Christ. And that's what he says here. He says in verse thirteen, Has Christ been divided? No, he hasn't been parceled out and each group has a different portion of them. (laughs) There's one body of believers. And all of us need to analyze our own lives and ask the question, are there seeds of dissension within me? Maybe there's something that I don't like about the way the church is run or how so-and-so runs his responsibilities or how this certain situation is handled. And so suspicions develop. You talk to your friends and organize your own little party, your own little group, division within the church. And a we they mentality develops. And people are pulling apart. And if those seeds of division are within you, then you need to to, to see them, analyze them, judge them, put them away. And that's what Paul is saying here. I exhort you, by the name of the Lord of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all agree that there be no divisions among you set aside, insisting on your own way. What was the cause of the divisions within this church? He tells us in verse 12. Now I mean this, that each one of you is saying, I am of Paul, and I am of Apollos, and I am of Cephas. In other words, what they were doing was rallying around men. And this is natural, because, as I said already, each of us as individual people has his own slant on things. A little bit different twist. Grasp on the truth. And therefore it's easy for us to find one individual we really like rally around that person and stand behind him. To so feel that this person has the real insight in the truth and if I just follow him, then my life will be filled with power and I'll be kept on track. And so we rally around, I am of Bill Bright, and I am of Bill Gothard, and I am of David Roper. I haven't yet heard anybody say, I am of Steve Newman, but... But I suppose that if I live long enough, I'll find somebody who's foolish enough to say even that. But notice that Paul is announcing things. He says, even the party that says, I am of Paul, Many pastors say, don't form parties and follow men, but if you want to follow me, I mean, that's okay. Because after all, we here at this church, under my leadership, do have a kind of a foothold in the truth, a corner in the truth. And there is something wrong with this group, and this group's wrong here, and they're wrong here, but we really have it right because of me, my leadership here. And many pastors project that kind of image and try to get people to follow them as men. One one way that we try to avoid that here is not have the same person preaching all the time and up front, because different people have uh, different gifts and different, different approaches and different insights into the truth. So we want to give that to you. And Paul denounces even the party that follows him. The party that's the most insidious, I think, is the last one, I am of Christ. I am not a follower of men like you people, but I follow Jesus Christ alone. But notice what's implied in that attitude. We over here are following Christ. You over there are following men. And it's just another party. It's another division. In the 1830s, there was a group of Christians in America who didn't like all the denominational differences and divisions that created among Christians, he started following Thomas and Alexander Campbell who were preaching against this sort of thing and preaching on Christian unity, celebrating the Lord's Supper in such a way that all Christians of different denominations could come and not be excluded, etc. And they were saying, we're not Baptists or Presbyterians, Methodists, Episcopalians, we're just Christian. But before too long it came to be We're not Baptists, Episcopalians, Presbyterians, Methodists. We're just Christians, just disciples of Jesus Christ. Of course, you know what happened. You can guess if you don't know. Pretty soon, another denomination developed, the Disciples of Christ, who is not a denomination, but just disciples. And pretty soon, before too long, it split into three denominations, Disciples of Christ, Christian Church, Churches of Christ. Now, party spirit, that mentality is so hard for us to fight. Churches are always breaking apart, following our conviction that this is the way we should do things, breaking up the body of Christ. And Paul goes on and says, I'm glad that I didn't baptize many people, lest, you, lest that be a cause of division. You say, well, Paul baptized me. No, he says, well, Paulus baptized me and I follow him. He's implying it's no big deal who baptizes you. Whether it's one of the pastors of the church or one of the high school kids we have doing it. Doesn't make any difference. The baptism, the importance of the baptism is what symbolizes, not who does it. And then in verse 17, he tells us the reason why they were rallying around men here in Corinth. He says, therefore, Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. Not in cleverness of speech, or as it's uh, literally means not in wisdom of speech, wisdom of word, that the cross of Christ should not be made void. What they were doing was overvaluing eloquence and human wisdom, which was natural for the Corinthians. This is how they were being influenced by the world around them. Because Corinth had a long history of philosophy and intellectual depth. In Paul's time, the very phrase Corinthian words meant words that were chosen because they would be pretentious. They would put on a show of intellectual profundity and great learning. And the Corinthians were like this. They really valued these things highly. And that's why they were rallying around men. Well, I am of Apollos because he is a great, eloquent speaker. Paul really can't speak that well. Well, I am of Paul because he is a deep, profound thinker. And Apollos can't write the epistles that that Paul does. And I am of Cephas because he is a man of great power in his preaching. And they were valuing these human abilities and the human wisdom of these men. And therefore, rallying around a particular man, thinking that by being in his party, following him, getting close to him, that will be my source to spiritual power and victory and effectiveness. Well, in verses 18 through 31, Paul tells us two reasons why overvaluing human eloquence and reason is wrong. First one in verses 18 through 25. Let's read those verses. For the word of the cross is to those who are perishing foolishness, And the weakness of God is stronger than men. He's saying here that it's wrong to overvalue human eloquence and wisdom because it doesn't fit in with God's scheme of things whereby he has overturned the wisdom of this world. God could have made the message of salvation an intricate, abstract philosophy that would have appealed to the Greek mind. He could have made the way of salvation, some magnificent show of power, a huge series of miracles that couldn't be contradicted by people that would have appealed to the Jews. But God deliberately chose to overthrow the wisdom of the world by bringing salvation through the word of the cross, the message of the cross. Now, this message of the cross is, first of all, the message that Jesus Christ died for us on the cross. He paid the penalty for our sins. But it's more than just the message of Christ's death for us. It's also the message of Christ's death in us. Look with me at Mark chapter 8, verses 34 to 35. And he summoned the multitude with his disciples and said to them, If anyone wishes to come after me, Let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life shall lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel shall save it. The message of the cross is not just a message about what Jesus has done. The message of what we must do also to find real life. We find it not by seeking to save our life. Not by grabbing hold and saying, the way I'm going to be satisfied and fulfilled is by doing my thing seeking my desires insisting on my rights and my way nor is it even trying to do god's way by your power paul says in philippians 3 i put no confidence in the flesh I count all these things as rubbish all my achievements for the sake of christ and i continue to do so in other words we the message of the cross to us is a no To all that we are. To our fleshly desires. Our selfish urges. But also to know to all of our powers and abilities. The way to real life is not through my ability to organize my life, take hold of it, use my self-confidence and get ahead in this world. That's not the real way to life. The real way to life it's through the cross. If you're saying no to yourself. Saying, I cannot do it. I must not. And depending upon God for all that you do. And Paul says in verse 18, the, the word of the cross is to those who are perishing foolishness. To the people around us in the world. You present this message to them, and they laugh it off. It's an old myth of fundamentalism they say. It's foolishness. But to us who are being saved, he says, it is the power of God. We find reality. We find that it works. We find that the way of the cross is a way to put life together, to make it happen, to make it worth living. And Paul says that God deliberately overturned the wisdom of this age. He quotes from Isaiah in verse 19 of God's intention. I will destroy the wisdom of the wise. The cleverness of the clever I will set aside. God deliberately arranges that the world would not come to know God through the world's own wisdom, but rather through the foolish message that he preached. The Jews, he says in 22, asked for signs. A great miracle. They were looking for a, for a Messiah who would be a political deliverer free them from the oppressive power of the Roman Empire, the Greeks were searching for wisdom. Greek philosophy of the ancient world was very much like Eastern philosophy of the, uh, of the world today, Hindu philosophy. And according to it, the problem of man is not sin, but ignorance. And so what the Greeks were seeking was a philosophical system, that would answer all of our problems and make rational sense out of things. He said what we need is not a sacrifice, but a teacher. Not a savior, but a guru who would teach us the truth, who would let us see that we have a spark of divinity within us and then we, by our own power, can can put life together. The philosophy of the Western world, of America in the 1970s, is is also contrary to God's wisdom. And we hear from every side, people telling us, if you want to be successful, if you want to be happy, then build your self-esteem, your self-confidence, your (coughs) self-assertiveness, seek your self-actualization, and then you can have life. We're told, put yourself first, then you'll be happy. Wayne Dyer, in his best-selling book, Uh, Urania's Sons, says don't let anybody else stand in the way of your happiness. You have all the power you have all that it takes to make your life whole. Put it together. You just have to believe you have those resources. Build that self-confidence. Put yourself first. Seek the happiness you want and you can get it. And to this kind of world, God's message of the cross is utter foolishness. Talked with a woman a couple of months ago who's a Christian but unhappy in her marriage and she decided the best thing for me to do is to get a divorce to start all over to be freed from all these things that's, that tie me down now that I don't like that produce unhappiness and that's good advice from the world's standpoint if you can change your circumstances and make yourself happier then do it and God's advice to her and to the world is utter foolishness God says if you're unhappy in your marriage, then serve more. Give up your selfish desires rather than give in to them. Seek to serve your mate more, not to demand more. That's ridiculous. Doesn't make sense. If you want to be happy, you have to seek your own happiness. At least that's what the world says. But God deliberately chose a philosophy. Contrary to the world. To shame the world. When we value human eloquence and human wisdom, we're saying that human abilities are the real secret to life. If you have them, then you can have life. God says no. But it's through self-denial, through the message of the cross, that you don't have what it takes. You have to say no and lay hold of what Jesus Christ has for you. And he says in verse 25, or verse 24, But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. He makes sense out of life, and it works. He puts it together. Because, verse 25, the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. God's way of doing things may be utter foolishness to the world, but it works. Whereas the world's philosophy really doesn't. It might appear to on the surface, but it doesn't really work. There's no power in it. But in God's way of doing things, there is power. Then verses 26 to 31, Paul tells us a second reason why overvaluing human wisdom and eloquence Is wrong. For consider your call, brethren, that not not many of you were wise according to the flesh, in other words, according to human standards, not many mighty, not many noble. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong. And the base things of the world and the despised God has chosen, the things that are not that he might nullify the things that are, that no man should boast before God. But by his doing you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption, that just as it is written, let him who boasts boast in the Lord. And the reason it's wrong to overvalue human eloquence, wisdom, is because It runs contrary to God's status system. system. Now God could have chosen that all heads of state, all movie stars, all professional football players, all beauty queens would all become Christian. And they could say, look at me. I'm a person of great status. You should become a Christian too. But he says that God deliberately chose the weak and foolish things of the world. He says there are some who are rich and famous, have status, powerful, but not many. God deliberately chose people like you and me instead so that he could shame the mighty, put them to silence. And it's wrong to overvalue human eloquence and wisdom because we are. By doing that, we are overturning God's system of values. We can do that in a couple of ways that I think of. One is is by celebrity, celebrity worship. We overvalue status in others. We make a big deal about people who are the presidents of corporations and writs and president of the student body and a football hero and beauty queen and all these types of things. And yet we as Christians often idolize all these people, make a big deal. Now, can you imagine some church advertising? You know, you read the Saturday paper in the religious section, see all those advertisements. Imagine yourself reading one. Come here at our church, Joe splodnick who tried out for the Denver Broncos, but was cut. And now he's pumping gas at the stinker station over in State Street. And then you see another one. Come here at our church, Bonnie Beautiful, a young woman aspiring to be a New York model and a film star. She entered the Miss Idaho pageant, but came in 42nd, and now she's selling makeup at a Sears store in Pocatello. <laughs> now, I'm not saying it's wrong to maximize on the opportunities that are available through things that people do and to use Chuck Colson's fame and things like that to open doors for the gospel. But it's wrong when we make a big deal out of these things and think these are really the important things. When we think if we could if God could just get the BSU quarterback to become a Christian. And then Farrah Fawcett Majors and then Albert Brainstein then we could really have an impact upon our community. Or if we could just get a whole bunch of people to get PhDs and gain respect and then go over to BSU, we could win that campus for Christ. Or if we can all become presidents of our corporations, become millionaires, then we can win the business community for Christ, here in voice. Maybe if we do that, we'll be the business community. The problem is when we put put a lot of stock in these things. And we can overturn God's value system, his status system, by worshiping others, the celebrities. We can also do it by putting a lot of stock in these things for ourselves. There's an insidious philosophy that invades a church from one generation to the next. It says something like this. If you want to be a good witness for Jesus Christ, Then become the valedictorian of your school. Basketball star, beauty queen. Have the best tulips on your block. Win at the bridge club every week. Become a millionaire. Make sure that you're socially with it. The flashiest dresser among your group. Always look just perfect. And through all these things, cultivate a, a vivacious personality. And through these things, you can be a witness of Christ. Project the proper image to people, and they will come to him because of these things. That's wrong. Notice that, that God could have done things the other way. But Paul says here that God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame things which are strong. And base things of the world to despise God has chosen. The things that are not. We might nullify the things that are. If we, on the other hand, say, well, we have to become something, we have to gain worldly status so that we can do something for God, then we're completely ignoring God's method. We're completely ignoring the way in which he has worked. If we start to get the idea that if we can just get together enough money and enough advertising expertise then we can put together an evangelistic campaign that can reach voices. Or if we somehow think, well, an important part of my witness is that I have to become a flashy dresser, always be in, make it in the in crowd, then I can do something for God. Then we're overturning God's system of values. If, on the other hand, you're sitting there and you think, well, gee, look at me. I'm a little bit overweight, got a few pimples, never have been able to dress right. I always feel like I'm out of style. My flowers always die. I always lose at bridge. I can't play tennis. I am not don't have a great deal of respect at work. I don't have a vivacious personality. Well, gee, I just can't do anything for God. I guess the most I can do is come and attend church and you know, make it look like it's a place where a lot of people are and help out that, that way and give a few bucks and then maybe help somebody else who's vivacious and, and have an outstanding personality do something for God. Now, if you're feeling like that, remember, if you're like that, you're the very kind of person God likes to choose. He likes to bring those kinds of people to himself because he likes to use that kind of person to shame the mighty and the wise. Now, who would you say, tell me, who would you say is the most well-known, most influential evangelical Christian in the world today? Who would you say? Billy Graham. And what is Billy Graham? A Baptist preacher. (laughs) I remember when I was in high school and I was dating a girl from the uh, ritzy part of town and she later became a debutante and her parents were all into that kind of thing and they went to the Episcopal Church with Vance Packard, who book "The Status secrets is that's the best, most prestigious church to go to. And we were at a... Uh, Young Life group had a parents' meeting, and we both got our mothers to come. And during the meeting, I quoted a few Bible verses, and she told me later on that that her mother said, well, what does Steve want to be, a Baptist preacher or something? (laughs) A Baptist preacher just doesn't have a lot of respect and status in the world's eyes. And yet that's the type of person God has chosen to be probably the most influential man in Christendom today, Billy Graham. He's preached to more people than anybody in human history. Or who do you think of when you think of somebody who's the most influential Christian philosopher? Who do you think of? Francis Schaeffer. Well, who's Francis Schaeffer? He was a Sunday school representative, traveling around Europe, uh, working Sunday school material for children. And what do the university professors think of him? Well, he doesn't have a degree from any prestigious university, just a a little-known seminary, doesn't have a Ph.D., the doctor's only honorary, hasn't written any scholarly works. His works may be over our heads, but but they're not written in the same way that scholars at universities write things. And he's despised as being superficial, and uh, not fitting in with their way of doing things. And yet God has chosen him to be the most influential Christian philosopher of our age. And he's done a great service. But this is the way God does things. He likes to choose the weak and despise of the world to shame the mighty. We, I would expect that You know, if I wanted to make an impact upon the intellectual community, I'd need to get a Ph.D. from Harvard and one from Cambridge and one from the University of Basel and get a few of them going and write a lot of scholarly works and get an important professorship at a prestigious university, and then I could do something. The God's way is to choose somebody who's weak and despised in the world and use such a person. We need to That brings up another question about God's choosing. Notice that he doesn't say God has chosen the gospel, which is foolish, that only foolish people would believe. But he says that God has chosen foolish people. Now this brings us to a mystery that I can't explain to you. The scriptures do teach that, that we are responsible as human beings, that we exercise our free choice. God's not compelling us to do things but also is teaching that God somehow is mysteriously behind our salvation and sovereignly at work. And the reason Paul mentions this here is it has an important ramification upon what he's trying to get across here. When I first became a Christian, I wondered, now why is it that I became a Christian and none of my friends did? Being the perceptive young lad I was, I quickly came to the answer. I have become a Christian because I'm more intelligent than they are, more noble. I mean, they want to live for all their base animal instincts, but I am now following the truth. I have enough perception and brilliance to be able to analyze things and see where the truth is and follow that, but not them. And so I felt uh, pretty proud of myself for a while. But as I grew as a Christian, I came across passages like this. And Paul says, verse 30, But by his doing, you are in Christ Jesus. Even our salvation, we can't claim as as really coming from us ultimately. We can't say it's because I was so smart to make that choice. Even behind that choice, God was working. Not that we were puppets or pawns in a game. Not that we were forced to do something or we didn't exercise our free will but God is behind it all some way. He says, the reason is that no man might boast before God. God has set things up this way deliberately so that no human being might boast in his presence. Which leads us to another question. Why does God not want people to boast? Is God a jealous, vain being who's like a little baby, who demands that all the attention be centered around him? Well, no. God is the creator, the God. We are just creatures. It's in his character that the universe be run in such a way that things are appropriate and right. It's only right for us to honor him for who he is. But furthermore, God has our best interest at heart because he knows that the philosophy of the world that says the real secret for you to have life put together, make it meaningful, make it work, is to build your self-confidence and your skills and your abilities. You have the power to do things. He knows that that doesn't work. He knows that what we all need to do is to believe the message of the cross. Not boast in ourselves, but trust totally upon him. Not just for the big problems of life, but for everything, every day. Remember Jesus Christ said, apart from me you can do nothing. We cannot live life in the way he intended it to be lived. cannot have any relationship work out in the way he wants it. Work that we do in the way he wants it done. Apart from him, outwardly it might look okay, but it's not all that he wants it to be. For our sakes, as well as for him. And so because of his love for us, he has arranged things in such a way that no human being might boast before the presence of God. So we need to remember that we shouldn't overvalue human status, powers, and abilities. Because these are not the really important things. These aren't the things that we count on to live life, to be effective as Christians. What we believe is the message of the cross, which says death to all of our own selfish desires, death to our merely human abilities, and a total dependence and trust upon God and what he can do in us and through us. Let's pray. Father, this is a hard message for us to understand and to believe. It's hard for us to see ways in which The world's philosophy is creeping into our lives and minds. Help us to understand. Enlighten us. And correct our thinking where it needs correction. Thank you for your work in us. In Christ's name, amen.